0: Today, when Nikki was mentioning all the things, I just thought, "Can we pray for my beautiful nation, just together?" God, God, we're so sorry that we've pulled water out of the ground and made the ground dry, so that we could, so that we could produce more coal. And we're so sorry, Lord God, that we've. Our corporations have been so greedy that we've cut down thousands of trees and we've taken, we've changed the climate in our land. God, we're so sorry that we haven't listened to all the reports way back to the 70s and, and even before that. Lord, we're so sorry that we've been, we're all saying we didn't realise. Lord, we're just so sorry. And Lord, I know that there are answers, but right now the answer, the only answer, Lord, is just to have pouring rain. So, Father, we just pray for pouring rain on our nation. And, Father, I pray that as you pour the rain on our nation, Lord, that you would change the church in our nation, Lord, that we would no longer be looking at ourselves and our image, but, Lord, that we would be looking at what it is that you want to do in our land. And I ask you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, do you know... um, Britain changed me. I, I, this isn't in my notes, but I want to say again, when Rick and I came to Britain, we we had this picture of what church should be like. And um, and really, it was about getting people saved and building more churches. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. And, and Skylark has done that. And, and so all of that's wonderful. But I remember coming and, and meeting people like um, Jim and Sue Gibson, who were going into Romania, into this really broken place and trying to bring the love of Jesus. And I'd always thought the missionaries were just sort of a different group. They didn't really come out of the church. And, you know, um, Jeanette Grant, who was working with homeless people, and Paul and Liz Jevons and Alison Macklin, who were were doing something for people um, who'd had abortions and just couldn't really recover or who'd had miscarriages. And I remember looking at all of that you know, curiously, because I didn't really understand that's what the church was supposed to be like. And um, I didn't understand, and it took me some years to really imbibe the greatness of the British church, just the, the greatness. And you might look at all the big churches with, with lots of stuff happening and all the smoke machines and all the rest of it, the rich churches, some of which come out of Australia, and you might think that that's what church is meant to look like but actually if you look back in your history in britain people like the roundtrees and the cadburys and the barclays and the Guinnesses and others they went into in the like in the 18th century they were going into the poorest areas and they were developing villages for people to live in and schools and um, they were finding ways to train people for work and they were just doing the most amazing things Um, and they were being church now Colgate was another name now we know those names as big businesses and they don't they don't have anything really now to do with social justice but Wilberforce you know Hannah Moore um There was two kinds of Britain going at that time there were the the people who were enslaving the Africans and the Irish and they were enslaving the Irish and then there was the church of the Wilbur forces and the Colgates and the Hannah Moores and there was a there was a, a strong delineation between churches as we would expect going every Sunday and the people who started to boycott sugar and not use it at all because it was it needed to be, slavery needed to be stopped. And so there was the church, the church was so strong. And you still have that. You know, I look at the British church and I'm very familiar with the British church. And I'm quite familiar with um, the American church. And I'm very familiar with the Australian church. And I travel backwards and forwards. I don't know if you know this, but the British church is way ahead of all the churches in the in the Western world we've got the persecuted church that's got its own its own way of being we've got the developing world church it's got its own way of being but the Western world the church is fading in the Western world we're the richest we're also the smallest group of people and so Britain seems to not have been overwhelmed by the need for for um, being important and being beautiful and being big and having a lot of everything. Britain seems to me, everywhere I go, I see people who are reaching in like, you're a new generation, you know, going again. Sue and Jim were doing something and now Big Love is going. And so many of you, like, this, I I could just sit and repeat, just go through, like, um, you know... um, what you guys are doing, I've got the name of it. Reach every generation, reaching every generation. Working with kids, with knife crime. Transforming lives for good, which is about making sure that kids that rely on school lunches through the holidays don't get enough to eat. Transforming lives for good is doing that. The Eden Project, where people are leaving, you know, beautiful middle-class environments and moving into the worst district. You guys are way ahead. You're so far ahead. And when I come to Britain, I cry a lot because I see the church working. Now you can say, "Well, it's not really in my neck of the woods, or over here, or where not." You you know, a fish doesn't know what water is. Of course, there's always going to be people who just go on Sundays and then come home. But but that's not what this church is about, and that's not what so many churches across. This nation are about. you're looking to find ways. So I'm very aware ways to reach people who wouldn't otherwise be reached with a gospel that is not just about getting saved, but it's about the kingdom. And so I'm pressing, but it ain't working. OK, and so when I'm preaching this to you I am aware of the fact that in some ways I'm preaching to the converted. Oh, look, Steve Cooper over there, who just goes out and works with with people bringing drumming, drumming lessons to people who are disabled and maybe don't get a great deal of attention paid from them. It's like everybody is looking for a way to reach in and touch people who otherwise might not be touched. I'm, I'm so I'm so affected by it. So I'm really aware of the fact that I might be preaching to the choir here. And you're perfectly welcome to say to me, we already know that, Bev. So, you know. But for those maybe who don't, or even just for the fact that we need a new level of understanding, I'm going to be speaking really about the revolutionary Jesus Christ. I know that knowing him is your theme. And there's a lot of ways you can know him. And I, and I heard that Nikki preached an absolutely astonishing message about knowing Jesus in the, in the pain of your life and the unanswered prayer of your life. And, and so I want to preach about Jesus the revolutionary. Now, you know, we're a week after Christmas if we count Christmas from being the 12 days of Christmas supposed to finish on the 5th of January. So by now the tree's gone and the lights are packed away and the decorations are gone for another year and new health resolutions are already being made and the bills are coming in. So, you know, but even for people who love Christmas, we get so used to the beauty of it that we forget the mind-boggling revolution and the astonishment of it was. We read this scripture every year. For unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Oh, not that one. And the government will be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. But very often we don't read the next verse. If your Bible's open, you can look at it. But otherwise, you've got to wait till the end of this talk. So the more familiar the story is to us, the less revolutionary it becomes to us. Sentimental, fuzzy, warm, irritating, stressful, hyped, but not revolutionary. And yet Christmas is the story of the greatest revolution that mankind will ever know in all its history because it's a revolution against the tyranny of sin and shame. It's a, revolutionary, a revolution against marginalisation And prejudice against corruption and power mongering. The one with all the power, I think you're gonna have to turn me down because I'm getting enthusiastic here. (laughs) The one with all the power dropped every aspect of his power in order to bring a revolution to the hearts and the minds of people who had no hope. So knowing Jesus has got so many different aspects, I know that. But a massive part of it entails understanding more about the revolution for justice that he brought. Now, the word revolution means, ah, means a forcible overthrow of the government or social order in favour of a new system. Jesus is a revolutionary. In every generation, he addresses the issues that governs our lives, the ones that we by ourselves are helpless to deal with. He offers us a change of government, and for those who will pursue that change of government. It will address our insecurity and our greed and our fear and our rejection, our lust, our pride, our shame, our pettiness, our self-pity, and it will replace all of those things with freedom. Now, it's impossible to imagine right now, but there was a time when humanity was flawless, living in perfection, until they made a deal with the devil, enabling them to become self-determining. Rather than let God tell us what is good and what is not, they made a choice on our behalf. And henceforth and forevermore, we get to decide the difference between good and evil ourselves. How's that working for you? It ain't working well for me. So from that perfect point, from that point, the perfect planet veered wildly out of control. And as a result, they had to leave The stunning beauty of the world that God had fashioned for them, where there were no tears, no angry voices raised, no drought, no flooding, no sibling rivalry, no drowning in debt. They had to leave a place where the laughter rang through the hills and the valleys. And the joy of life was the only normal that they knew. And there was no reset button and there was no going back. And humanity fell pell-mell into such imbalance within one generation, a man murdered his brother. Within one generation, a man murdered his brother. because they were so far removed now from the perfection, and people began to beat those who loved them. and humans were bought and sold and used and abused and violated, and the animals and the earth that were placed in our care became something that we made money out of or made fun from. And humankind lost the perfection in which they were made. And then we spend vast amounts of money trying to get that perfection back on our faces, on our homes, on our neighbourhoods. Because we know through war and through ideologies, we're working to get back to that perfect place because we know this isn't really where we should be. People shouldn't really die. We, we shouldn't be overwhelmed with the stuff that, that doesn't work to bring us back into that place of perfection. And then came the incarnation. Oh, I'd love to think that that worked. Yes. Isn't that beautiful? The incarnation, God coming in flesh and blood. The message Translation says the Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood. Like Adam and Eve, Jesus left a world of perfection and he moved into the squalid, putrid slum that we had made of the world that he created. And if you think that you can look around and see beauty, you go to the Pennines or you go to Cornwall and you see beauty, that is just a tiny smidgen. Of what it was created to be. He was born days after his mum was travelling on a donkey. He was born without a gynecologist or without a midwife. His, His arrival was shockingly domestic. He wasn't born in a mansion among the rich and the powerful. No celebrities welcomed him into their home. There was no hot and cold running water. No warm, soft blankets to wrap around him. In fact, in his entire 33 years, he never even visited the important people in his town and they didn't visit him either. And when he came to be one of us, God positioned himself not in a palace, but in a family. The new creation began in the confines of siblings and parents. And you know what that's like. The way He chose to become one of us meant that the people He came to save were entirely oblivious of the fact that God was engaging with us on our terms. Our ordinary humanity was the place He chose to meet with us. Now, our celebrity culture values being seen and being acknowledged, but he began his work here in a manger and he continued it through 30 long years of ordinariness, of being hidden, of being unknown to anyone at all really, except the people in his town who saw him as the carpenter's son and his illegitimacy to be the proof of his mother's sin. He lived with that. Those obscure years where his humanness was growing Are part of our salvation. Our humanity doesn't make it more difficult for us to relate with Jesus. It's what we have in common with Jesus. Can you imagine the jarring change? In order to reset humanity's clock and to ring bring back our right to come freely into the perfect presence of God. He had to live in a place that was totally opposite of everything that he knew. A place where people screamed at each other and used and abused each other. Where the dirt got in your eyes and your nose. Where hay fever and cancer and disease and death are normal. A perfect being who left perfection and surrendered himself to be muddied and bloodied and broken and torn so that we could be free from our muddied, bloodied, torn brokenness and find the freedom that can only come with Him, only come because of Him. The devil tried to make a deal with Him like he did back there in the garden, but Jesus is not a deal-making God. There's only one way for Jesus. He came to save humanity, not just the lives of the people who were good enough, but any life with eyes to see and ears to hear, to receive what He freely gives. He came into places of abuse and suffering. And many of you know and can think straight away, your mind goes back to those places. He came into places of, of um, complacency and pride. And if you let yourself think that, you'll, you'll see that in yourself as well. He wasn't afraid of the obscenities of wealth and of poverty, because it's all equally tragic to him. And his purpose was to be those things so that we could be free from them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he made him who knew no sin, not just to carry our sin, but to be sin. All of those terrible things that have ever happened to you, Jesus became that. All of those terrible things you've ever done, Jesus became that. Didn't just carry it, became it. He bestowed an astonishing gift of undeserved righteousness on anyone who would receive it and receive it the day they found it and receive it again and again throughout their lives. We are so prone to begin by thinking that only Jesus gives me righteousness. And then gradually, over the period that we've been a Christian, we make this long, slow descent into unconsciously congratulating ourselves on how righteous we are. And this is the thing, self-righteousness and unrighteousness are siblings. They're both unrighteous. They both stink equally. The freedom that we crave cannot be found in how well we behave. Or how good other people think we are. It can only be found in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just five years ago or 15 years ago or 50 years ago when you first came to know Jesus. But now. Because now is always when we need His righteousness most. Now, I started off talking about Christmas. And Christmas isn't a biblical word. You won't ever find it in the Bible. We made it up out of two other words, which just goes to show you, you can make up words. It's perfectly reasonable to make up words. So this is literally Christ mass. The Christ celebration, mass means celebration. The Christ celebration for people like you and me who've given up trying to be good enough, righteous enough, rich enough, strong enough, spiritual enough, capable enough, caring enough, and are learning how to walk in the freedom of the celebration of Christ, the Christ mass, celebrating that Christ is enough. So anyone who gets that increasingly becomes free from the tyranny of the world that constantly telling us, you're not enough. You're not enough. You're not rich enough. You're not beautiful enough. You're not kind enough. You're not good enough. You're not friendly enough. You're not intelligent enough. We can say, when that comes, don't say, no, I am, I am, I really am. We say, yeah, I'm not. But Christ in me is. Christ is enough. And because he's enough, I'm enough. I don't have to try and make up the difference. So at the beginning of his life, and again at the end of his life, when he, when he was looking to, for a place to have the Last Supper with his friends, Jesus went looking for a room, a place that would welcome him and allow him to stay. Now, at that time, that was a physical place. But now he looks for room in our hearts. And he'll take up as much space as we give him. And we often don't realise that we're not giving up all, giving him up all the space. When I first became a Christian, there was a whole lot of things I didn't want to relate with God about because I was thinking that he might actually talk to me about it. I didn't want him to. And so there's a lot of things I never prayed about because I wanted to go ahead and do what I was going to do. And I didn't want him to tell me not to. So it was like he had this little living room in my heart. He sort of got in the front door and took a seat in the living room. And there've been a lot of years and a lot of pains and a lot of challenges and a lot of gritted teeth to let him gradually take more and more room in my life. And even still, I have to keep saying to the Lord, Is, am I locking you out of that place? Will you come into that place? And so change comes to all of us in that way. But the heart is of great value to Jesus. It's hugely expensive real estate. He died to purchase the real estate of my heart and of your heart to buy me back from the consequences of my sin. But it's only as I surrender those different aspects of my heart that he can live there. The truth of the celebration of the Christ Mass belongs in the blood, sweat and tears of surrendered hearts that keep laying down their need to be right, their need to be seen, their need to be acknowledged, their need to, you know, their need to whatever it might be, that keep laying it down, the things that we long for in order that Jesus can be alive in our hearts at that point. So that revelation deals with the smugness and the pride And the pettiness and the cruelty and the self-justification and the independence and the neediness and the fear that afflicts us as Christians all the time, just as much as it afflicts anybody else until we can get past it, until we can bring it to the Lord. Now, in talking about Christmas, you know, one of the big figures of Christmas is Santa Claus, jolly, overweight. And this is the point. He's looking for the good girls and boys. And so we have to know that if good is to do with how good your presents are, then the richer kids are gooder than the kids who aren't so rich, right? And that must be tough for kids, wondering if they've been good enough and then seeing their friend that got an iPad and they got, you know, a little Lego set or something. So, you know, Santa Claus for us, yeah, I'm not saying... I'm not saying that's not a theological statement about Santa Claus, but I want to tell you there was a far better model that Santa Claus has been built on, and that's St. Nicholas, who doesn't look really all that jolly, does he? Um, The real Santa Claus was a third century kid whose mum and dad had died when he was young of the plague and he went to live with his uncle who was a monk and he was brought up in a monastery and he learned to love Jesus very quickly. He was highly influential as a Christian leader, even from a young age, and he became the Bishop of Myra, which is Turkey. Um, he wasn't fat or jolly. In actual fact, he punched another theologian in the face when they were arguing about whether Jesus was equal to God so they had this big in in the year 325 they had this big conference at Nicaea and they had about 300 bishops all come and they're all talking about the trinity and whether Jesus is equal and one of the guys Arius was pretty sure that Jesus wasn't and Nicholas listened for a while and then in the end he was just like nah and he so he punched the guy in the face and he ended up in jail so um, that was interesting his parents had been very wealthy, but money wasn't a motivator for him. So he was giving it away all the time. And one time he heard about a girl whose father was deeply in debt. This is, this is a social justice person, right? This is a person who understands where Jesus is coming from. He hears about this, this girl, these girls whose father was deeply in debt, and they were going to be sold into sex trafficking, is what we would call that now. They were going to be sold. And because there was no dowry for them, because their dad had this debt. And so because he's trying to give his money away all the time, he goes past secretly and he couldn't find a way in the door. So the legend has it. I mean, it's true that he gave the money, but the legend has it that he threw the three bags of gold into the, down the chimney and the girls had their stockings hung up on the chimney and, and a bag of gold fell into each of the stockings, which is, you know, incredibly implausible. But nevertheless... You know, the idea was there. Like, it was that such a cool story? He's so much more amazing than Santa Claus ever could be because Santa Claus gives the best ki- best gifts to the richest kids and the least gifts to the poorest kids. But Saint Nicholas was like, how can I make a difference? How can I help these girls? How can I bring breakthrough there? So. he He bringing justice and mercy to people who hadn't much of either. So Santa Claus has got nothing on sick Nick. And then I heard about the um, Charles Dickens story, which is a Christmas carol. Has anybody seen or read a Christmas carol? Okay, so a Christmas carol has been sort of dumbed down as well. And it's become like a children's story. And it's in cartoon form and all the rest of it. But Dickens was a great writer who wrote to awaken people's hearts to social justice. So the story, The Christmas Carol, is an absolute indictment on a society that has forgotten the reasons for celebrating the Christ Mass. Now I shudder at the ghost of Christmas present because he's fat and jolly and he's got a crown on his head and there's all this food and decorations and this massive Christmas tree and all that kind of thing. And then I'll I'll let you watch the video. Are we ready for the video? Okay, so just for those of you who don't know, Scrooge was a really rich, rich man who didn't want to give anything to anybody. And at one point of time, two guys come to him and they say, could you contribute some money to help the poor at Christmas? And he's like, no, I'm I'm not giving anything. And he's like, and they're like, well, you know, there's no help for them. And he says, are there no workhouses? Are there no prisons? meaning, put them there. And so if we could have that, please. They're hidden, but they live. Oh, they live. They're called ignorance and want, and on their foreheads is written doom. They're your children, he says. They're your children, the children of all who refuse to deny that they exist. When Scrooge finally understands the Christ Mass, which is the celebration of Christ, he says Christ's in our heart. It's not in the lights. It's not in the decorations that become more beautiful and cheaper every year, thanks to the horrific working conditions of the people who make them. It's not in the maxed out credit cards or the sickening dread of wondering if your family will get on all the way through Christmas Day. Christ mass is only real when it's celebrated in individual hearts. And that's the revolution that Jesus intended when he laid down his life. That, that scripture, again, it just goes on and it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But it goes on to say, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. That's great. We're cool with that. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. That's great too. But look how he establishes it. He establishes it and upholds it in justice and righteousness. From that time and forever, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He doesn't establish it in moral purity I want to tell you, moral purity is the beginning. It's the baseline. And many times what happens is the Church of Jesus Christ makes moral purity the thing. And then, okay, if you're pure enough, well, then just come right in. Moral purity is the baseline. And it's something we're all struggling just to keep working through and keeping our hearts right and doing the right thing. But I know that a pastor in Australia said to me, I'm passionate about justice. And at the time, I didn't have the words to say to him, but I will say it one of these days. You're not passionate about justice. You're just passionate about being personally seen to be right. You just want to be right. So if you've been misunderstood or misrepresented, you're passionate about the fact that you wish that wasn't happening. But Jesus is passionate about justice. When he says, unto us a child is born, he doesn't mean to us Christians or us Jews He means us. That us was before most of the religions of the world were even formed when that was said unto us a child will be born. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. One of the most authentic signs of the celebration of Christ is justice and righteousness operating out of our life. The kingdom of God has never been about careful, conservative morals. The church of Jesus Christ has become obsessed with sexual purity and sexual morality. But I just want to tell you, that's not wrong, but there's a a lot of other things out there to be obsessed about that are to do with justice and mercy. You know, walking past the homeless person on the street and sort of turning our face to one side, hoping that they don't see that we don't see them. And so... It's a given. Jesus is obsessed with justice for the poor and the marginalized. Scripture shows his values far beyond who is sleeping with who. God is vitally concerned with our understanding of poverty and justice. He says, Pure and undefiled religion is this, to look after the widow and the orphans in their distress. And also, yeah, you know, don't get caught up in the world. In Micah 6.8, which I've got tattooed on my foot now, just so I don't forget it. And I've got it all over my house. He has shown you, O mankind, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but to act justly in every situation, in every context, to love mercy. And then, yeah, walk humbly with you, God, but love mercy. He rebuked the religious people in Luke 11. He says, You go out of your way to tithe, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, which is justice and righteousness. The kingdom that he will establish when he comes to reign among us is justice and righteousness. And when Jesus reigns for all to see, what they will see is justice and mercy and righteousness. So we need Christianity to preach that all over the world on the radio stations and the churches and in the organisations and in the TV stations and all that. But most of all, we need to be living that justice and we need to be living that mercy to each other. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he comes in the form of a beggar. Of the dissolute human child in ragged clothes. He confronts you in every person that you meet. As long as there are people, Christ will walk the earth. Oh. Christ will walk the earth as your neighbor, as your friend, as your sister, as your brother, as your mother, as your father, as your son, as your daughter. You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a fantastic theologian. He comes in the form of a beggar. He doesn't come on a great big, you know, nothing on great big platforms and we need a roof over our head so we're not standing out in the the rain. I'm not saying you shouldn't have the house that you've got or you shouldn't have the church that you've got or you shouldn't. I'm not saying... what we shouldn't do. This isn't a message about what we shouldn't do. This is a message celebrating that we're following the greatest justice revolutionary that the world has ever known. And there has to be an outworking in our lives that expresses that. That has to come. That has to be the thing that we see. Do you know that there are almost half, do you know that almost half a million? No, let me say that again. Do you know that almost half of the 70 million refugees that are in the world today are children? The figures say that 37,000 people become new refugees every day because of climate crisis or war. Homeless populations are escalating in Western nations. The single greatest increase of homeless populations is single women over 50. And I know women who that age who are couch surfing because they haven't really got anywhere to go do you know that more kids in the west now are going to school without anything to eat more than ever before do you know that women and girls continue to be bought and sold and mutilated and killed by people who are trying to who are supposed to not trying to people who are supposed to protect them do you know that when the man was bleeding and broken by the roadside in the story of the Good Samaritan? It was the priest and the good religious person who crossed the road to avoid seeing him. Do you know that God's heart for mercy is so combined with justice that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to suffer the most dreadful torture and death just so that we wouldn't have to. Knowing Jesus means coming to terms with statistics like that. Don't tell me that you don't watch the news because, because it's so horrible. Because how can we know what our world needs? This is a season and a time where if ever the church would would be equipped and ready to rise and begin to address issues of brokenness and marginalisation and fear and poverty, it actually is now. We are the people on earth. We are placed here. On earth, it, it, to say it shouldn't be like this, the world shouldn't be like this. And we, we pick certain things that we think it shouldn't be like. So it shouldn't be like same sex marriage, and it shouldn't be like abortion, and it shouldn't be like, but actually, all the rest of it's okay. No, actually God is raising us up to look at things and see something on the news. And if we don't do anything else, begin to pray for that thing. Begin to pray. But maybe the Lord's saying like He has with the big love charity or or like He has with Reach Every Generation or He has with so many other things that are out there. Maybe He's saying you could do that. Why don't you just have a go at that? Maybe Maybe just pay for somebody else to go on the mission trip. You know, I don't. I'm not telling you what to do because I know that what Lighthouse is doing in terms of helping people that do not have their babies anymore is just as important and just as valuable in terms of the church showing justice as going into Romania or going to the knife crime people. That's that's the truth of it. I know that. I also know that every one of us can can take one step forward, can do one new thing, can say to the Lord, how do you want me? I know that many of you who are African, you're sending so much of your money back home that it's really difficult even just to stay alive yourself. That's the truth. So, you know, it's not just about money. And maybe some of the others of you could, could just help and say, who do you send money to? I send money to my mum. She needs medicine. Okay, I'm going to give you $10, £10 a month for your mum's medicine. Maybe that. I don't know. I don't know what we could do, but I know that we follow the warrior of justice, the revolutionary, the one who came to change the world. For unto us a child is born. All those years ago, before ever such religions came into being, the child came to us. But we divide ourselves up and we say it's not just us, it's us and them. So whether the us and them is men against women, Christians against Muslims, you know, kids against their parents, atheists against people of faith. Pride and religion forces us into categories of us and them, but the child was born to us, to all of us, so that all of us can truly know Him. And until we really know that, until we know that we are kingdom carriers that are called to bring the gospel of the kingdom, which is justice and righteousness and mercy everywhere we go, We won't look for ways to establish that kingdom. We've got to know that that's there. We've got to find the way to extend the mercy that burns in the heart of Jesus Christ into the people that don't know that. And so our mission, should we choose to accept it, which we have to do again every day when we get up in the morning, in such real and tangible ways that people who don't yet know what the Christ mass is can experience a revolution. Because that scripture, that um, Isaiah 9 verse 7, it says it's the zeal of God. It says "It says of the greatness of his government and peace there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time forward. I don't know whether you've ever, you know, I've seen Pete um, Sims talk about how you hand the baton on and, and about how both of you have to be running and to catch the than the button from the next person, but I actually feel like, you know when Jesus comes back or when we go to be with him, I would rather not be at a standing stop, and him coming along on his amazing train of justice and righteousness and saying, "Hang on, Bev, we'll slow down for you. I'll reach my hand out. I know you're coming from a place of standing, but I'll reach my hand out. I can just manage to pull you onto the train." No, that He finds us running to establish a kingdom of justice and righteousness so that when the righteousness train comes along and I go to be with the Lord, that He doesn't have to reach out. All I have to do is be running and just grab a hold of that handle with that hand, not that hand, with that hand and just leap onto the train. And I'm already doing what He was establishing, His kingdom, justice and righteousness. Now, you can do that and still go to the job that you go to. You can do that and still go to work. You could be working just extra kind to some, somebody that's disabled and it could just do with a hand. It, you, know, you don't have to change your life. You don't have to move to another country. You don't have to shut down your business or, or leave your job. Because actually you've been sown into those places in order to be the kingdom of God there and to be justice and righteousness there. And when you're, in, when you're somewhere and people are gossiping about someone and you're in the workplace, that you could be justice and righteousness instead of keeping your mouth shut or joining in. Even this little ways, no, I don't want to talk about that person. You don't understand the, the background that that person is struggling to deal with. We're not going to talk about that person. That's justice and righteousness. And so there comes on us something that we need in knowing Jesus, that we need to know all these different facets of Him. But there's this, the, the mighty facet is that our world is absolutely overwhelmed with injustice and lack of mercy and fear, fear of the other and not allowing the other in and not even so much as smiling to the person that walks past that in clothes that show that they're a different religion to you. You know what? Be great just to smile. Be great. That would be justice. That would be mercy. That would be righteousness. Because unto all of us, that child was born. And you don't even have to use the word Jesus, but every time each of us does something from a heart that Jesus gives us, they are receiving Jesus. They may not know it in their head, but they know it in their spirit, and there's change coming. So, Father, I pray for these people, Lord, knowing that so many of them are already so, so strong, already so, so willing to walk in justice and walk in righteousness and give mercy. I know I know, it's the heart of the church that you've established in Britain. I know that there's a rich inheritance that's come from way back from people like Wilberforce and Hannah Moore that has come way back from people like Guinness and, and so many others, Lord. It's a norm. It's the norm for you, Lord. The call on the life of the church in Britain is so astonishingly aware of justice, so astonishingly willing to give mercy, so astonishingly willing to step outside of what the church is supposed to look like with its conservativism and its nice way of speaking. So, so willing to step out of that and be radical, be strong, be loving, be full of justice, finding ways to be Jesus to the pe- people that they pass on the street. Lord, I know that about Britain and I know that about this church. And I thank you, Lord, that this church, you are raising it up to be one of the beacons across, across this whole nation. I, but I also know, Lord, it, it's just a light among many lights, that, that you're raising up your people in astonishing ways. And so, Father, I pray for revelation on each one of us. I deeply need it myself, Lord, that we would understand what it is to follow the greatest revolutionary that the world could ever know, the one who set us free from all the junk and it keeps doing that today and keeps doing that tomorrow. Helps us stop being self-seeking and self-serving. Help us stop being self-justifying and helping us understand how to bring your justice to those around us. Lord, I pray for revelation. We need your revelation and we need it in an increasing measure. And Lord, I thank you for the way that you gave it to me in increasing measure, and you're still increasing it in me, Lord. But I just thank you, Lord God, for an anointing over us, Lord God, that we will all just grasp that. And Lord, uh, and that people won't think, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to start. I don't have the money. I can't, I can't, I can't. Lord, that that will not be a our jumping off point. That won't be our baseline, but our baseline will be, Lord, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you and I know that you can show me and all I have to do is take the next step. So Lord, let us be people of the next step, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.